Hi everyone and Happy New Year. I'm Sarah Kachansky and welcome to episode 83 of InsureTech Insider. In today's show, we will be discussing the most interesting news in the InsureTech and insurance spaces from across the globe. But just before we start today, we wanted to comment on a statement made on the new show that was published on the 16th of December last year. On that show, one of our guests described Guidewire as a 30 to 40 year old legacy system. Guidewire is in fact 19 years old and often replaces older or legacy systems. We apologize for that and let's get on with today's show. As always, I'm not alone and today I am joined by Nigel Walsh. How are you doing today, Nigel? I'm very well, thank you. Full of the joys of Christmas and ready to fly into a vaccine very, very soon, hopefully. (laughs) Yes, I think we're all rather still full of the joys of Christmas. I heard a comment earlier that dry January has turned into dry January, what with lockdown and homeschooling, (laughs) which are now enforced in the UK. I think we'll all be thinking about diets and marathons perhaps in March. Um, We are also joined by some amazing guests today. So first up, making a much welcomed return, we have Jill Williams, Investment Principal at Anthemis. How are you doing today, Jill? Doing great, thanks. Great to be here. Um, And can you just quickly recap for our listeners what it is you do at Anthemis? Absolutely. So I'm an investment principal at Anthemis, and Anthemis is an early-stage fintech-focused venture capital firm. Uh, I'm based in the U.S., in New York. However, we have offices in New York and London, and really our, our focus is across North America and Europe broadly. Um, and we do pre-seed to Series A, everything sort of fintech insurance and adjacent areas to that. Brilliant. Also today, we are joined by somebody making their InsureTech Insider debut. We have Dan Keogh, CEO and Chairman at Holmes Murphy & Associates. How are you doing today, Dan? I'm doing well, thank you. So can you please explain for our listeners what Holmes Murphy & Associates is, as we haven't had you on before? Yeah, sure. Uh, Holmes Murphy is a traditional insurance brokerage firm based in Des Moines, Iowa. Uh, We're the third largest privately held insurance brokerage firm in the United States. I think between public and private, we're probably in the top 20 to 25. Uh, I think what's unique about Holmes Murphy is that we think differently about the insurance transaction. We don't look just to place coverage from, you know, carrier to customer. And what we try to do is look for alternative ways to help the industry and others move forward. Last year, we started Brokertech Ventures, uh, which is, I think, why, you know, we got connected with Nigel and all of you and we're appreciative of all the efforts that you are doing to lead our industry into a different place. You know, I think integration of technology, finance, capital markets, all of it, I think, is a really exciting time to be in the insurance space. Brilliant. Well, uh, we we obviously agree. Uh, So thank you very much, both of you, for for joining us today. Um, Let's get on with the show. So the first story uh, comes from the Financial Times in the UK, and the story is that insurance risk prompts UK care homes to reject hospital patients. So care homes across the UK are refusing to take hospital patients because they're struggling to secure adequate liability insurance. Care homes cannot risk taking COVID-19 or other patients in because they cannot get the insurance coverage they need and they're asking for support from the UK government. Robert Kilgower, chairman of Renaissance Care, which runs 15 care homes in Scotland, said his business had approached 28 insurers that had previously provided cover to the sector and all had declined. Uh, So here in the UK, we had a a really tough time at the start of the pandemic in care homes um, and uh, roughly half of all the excess deaths uh, last year were, were in care homes. 
So um, it's a pretty, pretty bad situation. Um, liability insurance is vital for those care homes in case families or the patients themselves were to sue the home due to an outbreak of the virus on site. Um, in the cases where care homes have managed to get liability insurance, premiums have more than doubled recently. Um, so this is a, a pretty sobering story to start with. I think everybody can agree on that on, on both sides. Um, what What do we think is the... Well, I think, does anybody have any idea what the solution might be here? I think from both perspectives, obviously, you can understand that insurers' risks have gone up, so hence the increased premiums and, and perhaps the declining to cover. But um, these are these are clearly important institutions within, within society, whether that's in the UK or wherever you are in the world. Um, and so I think, you know, everybody would think we should do all that we can to help them. But does anybody have any, any thoughts straight off on, on, on solutions that might be um, options here? You know, I don't have any solutions, but just looking back on history in terms of just, you know, what's happened in the past around high things that have high, high anxiety or uncertainty, you know, drives cost and coverage and in, in opposite directions, you know, and I think, you know, the, the challenge that we had after 9-11 where, you know, you look at, you know, things differently post, you know, events that no one ever thought could happen. And I think what you're saying is history repeats itself in that regard as it relates to pandemics and just everyone's you going back to this retreating of, you know, we can't cover, we can't price, there's too much uncertainty in it. Um, and I think that, you know, there obviously has to be some legislative uh, actions and there has to be some bold moves that are, you know, look at these traditional problems in a different and alternative way. Yeah, I think I, I agree. I think <clears throat> I don't have a great solution, but there absolutely needs to be some sort of government in, involvement. I think the fact that insurance companies are just opting not to cover them whatsoever seems a bit crazy to me. And it seems kind of similar to just deciding not to cover people with pre-existing conditions and seems a bit unfair. I think obviously it makes sense that premiums go up because uh, there is a much higher risk now. Um, but clearly the nursing homes or care homes uh, can't necessarily withstand such high premiums. And so I think given just how this entire thing has been handled by most governments um, across the world, I think it, it makes sense for there to be some sort of government intervention uh, to help with some sort of subsidy um, to be able to make those more affordable. Absolutely. And of course, here in the UK, um, you know, our healthcare is, is is government funded as well. And I think it would be fair to argue that care homes are an extension of, of the services provided by the hospitals. Um, Nigel? Yeah, I was going to say, I think you've all touched on the government issue or the government intervention. Um, I'm not going to be the consultant with the solution, but for, for quite a while, the UK has... Um, lobbied or there's been lots of press around pandemic re so the reinsurance fund that would support in the same way that we do for floods if you live near a flood zone or floodplain in the uk to make care or, or insurance coverage affordable you know ultimately insurance is there to protect against risks that are unknown or or, or, or otherwise as a risk management brokerage or otherwise you'd sit there and go hey if, if the likelihood of this risk taking place is that is 90 to 100 percent that it comes either with an inability to insure it or a premium to support it so i think we i think we've all touched on it it does need government intervention to support this and i suspect there'll be many more of these not necessarily pandemic but there'll be many more of these types of large-scale claims that hit us on mass whether it's cyber or whatever else it might be in years to come 
that the industry as a whole cannot fathom on its own and does need more scale, more large scale protection world over. Yeah, and I think, Nigel, to your point, it's in my mind, it's very different from what's been happening with businesses and sort of them trying to sue these insurance companies for business interruption insurance. And, and I think because this was a liability that kind of existed, well, obviously, maybe it wasn't specifically for COVID, but it was to protect these um, nursing homes against um, family members wanting to sue them for um, an untimely death of their of their loved one. And so I think for these insurance companies to not try to cover them, I think that that's defeating the purpose of the policy versus with the small businesses and business interruption. It, it was a very different story where people did not think about what happened when there was sort of non-physical damage and businesses just had to close because the government said so. Um, and, and so I think that that's really kind of taking what happens within business interruption insurance and almost creating a new policy and a new risk that needs to be added to this versus I think with COVID, it's just kind of a greater extension um, and exasperation of a risk that they were already covering. I think that's fair as well because I think that um, that you know you you might expect care homes which which cater for people who are who are vulnerable to to suffer outbreaks of illness. It's it's not um, as unexpected as perhaps you you know to, to your point there. It, it does feel like something that perhaps should be slightly easier um, to just add a bolt on or a you know a, an extension of, of of something that's already already there, uh, Nigel. No, I was just going to say that the, the simple definition is lives versus livelihoods. And whilst livelihoods have been destroyed through this thing world over, this truly is lives at risk and not just lives, lives of our, the, the, the most vulnerable category of people. And I can't, you know, thank enough for what the folks have done. They've done an amazing job. Generally, it's it's been outstanding that the, the lengths people have gone to. But um, yes, yeah, support definitely needed here. Okay. Well, I think we will leave that one there and move on to a more uh, upbeat story. Um, this one, we, but of course, we couldn't we couldn't do a podcast without about the news without touching on COVID. But let's try and sort of leave that one behind for for now and move on to something slightly more uplifting. Um, well, I think it's uplifting, and that's that Lemonade has hit one million customers whilst its share price has skyrocketed. Uh, so Lemonade has announced that it has reached more than one million customers in 2020, which is apparently 1,500 days after launch. Uh, the company expanded to France before Christmas, which was its third launch in a European country. Um, the I was going to read this statement out, but I think we all know this. The company's AI-driven solution gets smarter per customer that joins, says a spokesperson for the company. Um, and that would be generally how AI works, to my understanding of it. Um, Lemonade has a strategy of targeting first-time insurers, but it also has a long-term goal of keeping those customers throughout their lives. Uh, the company went public back in June, and on the 11th of January, it was trading at 180 it's just it's $180. I assume that's per, per share as opposed to the, the market cap. Um, the stock has touched an all-time high and caught the attention of investors. To find out more, we spoke to Yael Wisney-Levy, VP of Communication at Lemonade. Let's hear from her now. At Lemonade, we ended 2020 with more than 1 million active customers. And we're really proud of being able to hit that 1 millionth customer mark pretty early in the life of our company, relatively speaking. You know, we launched back in September of 2016 in New York. And four years later, just a bit over four years later, or 1,500 days, if you will, 
we were able to hit this milestone. And if you compare that to, you know, respected industry leaders in insurance, it took them out five to 10 times that. Um, and so it's really testament, I would say, about what it is to be completely digital, to offer a lovable experience that customers love, allowing for rapid growth, which also allows us to collect 100 more times data points than traditional insurers for each customer. That improves our product every day and it makes our business ever faster, ever cheaper and ever more precise to continue to delight customers and, of course, extend our competitive advantage as we grow. Thank you very much, Yael. So uh, thoughts on this, please. And we do cover Lemonade. Every time we do a new show, Lemonade seems to have done something um, and, and something newsworthy. I have to say, we don't just cover Lemonade because, you know, we fancy covering them every new show. Um, what does, does this, is this a big milestone to you or do you think it was actually relatively slow to get there? And the share price, I think, is a, you know, an interesting story or perhaps a slightly separate story. I don't know, Jill, shall I come to you first and, and see what you, you think about this one? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think no matter what, the millionth customer is a massive milestone for any company. And so I mean, obviously great kudos to them. And I think, especially with them going public last year, just they've done a lot for the insure tech industry, and broadly the fintech industry, just in terms of showing um, that one of these companies can be a viable public company, um, as well as perform really well in the market. Obviously, it's a bit of weird times where sort of everything is performing very well, especially anything um, in the tech sector. So uh, is it necessarily purely fundamentals? Probably not. But I do think that overall, it's been a great story for the insure tech space broadly. Um, and I think as they continue to expand, that that will get better. Obviously, I think that majority of their customers right now are sort of the first time renters and very heavily on the renters side rather than homeowners side. And I think they're continuing to try to expand that to grow who their customer is. And then obviously, I think it was the first podcast I was on with you guys, we were talking about the pet insurance as well. And with like one out of every five people in the US getting a pet last year, um, I think that shows that the market expansion for them is is going to be massive. So I think there's definitely going to be a lot of positive news for for lemonade to come yeah absolutely great great success story i think i think you'd be hard well there are naysayers out there who try to say it is it isn't it's not as successful as it looks and and but i think um on this show we're we're quite quite impressed uh dan what are your thoughts you know i again i think it's a great example of what could be done in the insure tech space right and i think there's a legitimacy to any business that reaches a million dollar or million customers and i think the financial markets i think there is some exuberance out there in all things including uh, lemonade but you know i think over time there's they're proving out the use of technology to accumulate customers and i think there's a great opportunity to widen out their uh, product offering uh, to expand their base Nigel, what about you? Well, I, I'm actually going to go back with a question to Dan, and more on the what, what do you think the threat is to traditional brokerages? I mean, I've had this debate with many of the folks over the years, and no doubt you're sitting there as a, you know, as, as you say, a, a top twenty brokerage sitting there going, "Hey, what are they doing with technology that's so damn good that gets them a ten billion dollar market cap in no time at all? What do we have to go do?" Yeah, and I think even to that point, I think the distinction between the, the public marketplace and the pricing versus a private marketplace in pricing is significantly different. 
So if, if, if you just looked at you know, the pricing of an insurance broker that's private versus an insurance broker that's public, there's a gap of about 100% in value, right? And so when you expand that to kind of our role as a broker in an integration of technology into the industry, that really leads us to why we started BrokerTech Ventures. It's a tech platform that really is around a five-tower operation of, of, of a convening opportunity where there was a lot of things going on in InsurTech where the broker's voice and our role was not represented. We know the industry the best. We know the customer's challenges the best. We know the complex issues. Um, and our, our role in all of that is to, to partner with technology and capabilities that we think we can accelerate farther faster and be part of the solution and be part of that. And I think, you know, over the last year, we had a, uh, our first cohort that accelerated 12 companies forward. The pre-value to post-value on those companies was significant in terms of markups. And I think, you know, when you look at the amount of applications that we receive from year one to year two, it's up more than 100%. Uh, we're going to start an accelerator in partnership, uh, you know, uh, with Kobe in, in Israel uh, this year. And we've got another uh, Brokertech Ventures, uh, you know, European uh, accelerator that we're going to launch uh, probably in 21. Uh, Jill, Jill in the financial markets page, one of our towers is capital. So we're out uh, talking about right now what we've done is matchmake opportunity early stage with capital partners. And what we've seen based on our role and our ability to drive value to these insure techs in the industry, uh, whether it's the insurance company side or the technology side or customers, it's 60 proof of concepts in that last year. We want to be part of that solution of advancing our industry uh, forward. So, you know, we, we have plans to raise a capital fund in 21 where we can accelerate some of these companies. But we think our role in that, Nigel, to your question, is is significant. It's one of a customer advocate. We haven't met customers that want to pay more in premium. Uh, you know, our goal is to seek out capabilities that can identify their risk sooner and drive down their costs faster. And if we can do that, we feel like we're adding value to the customer. But more importantly, and equally as important, we're we're, be, we're being a part of it in a more efficient marketplace going forward. And we think our role as a broker in that is 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 really the most important part of that. Because I think from a risk side, you can always underwrite what you know. I think what we've seen with pandemics or 9-11s or the next unknown is you can't price an unknown. And so everybody's at an equal disadvantage in that regard. So I, I feel really confident as, a, as an alternative thinking insurance broker about how we can be part of the solution. I think our role will become more valuable, not less valuable over time. I think it's really interesting to hear you there, Dan, talking about your sort of expansion plans that are sort of out, outside of, of, of your core market as well. And I just wanted to speak to Jill, or just ask a question to Jill about, um, you, you know, obviously Anthemis has, has both European and, and North American arms to it. I think it's really interesting that Lemonade has, rather than just staying focused on the US and doubling down on what is a huge market for all different types of insurance, has, has come to Europe um, and established itself now in, in, in three markets over on the mainland. Um, what, what, you know, what do you, what are your thoughts on on that the potential success that other companies might have in, in trying to cross that divide? Because we, we know and we talk about on this show quite often that the European market and the US market when it comes to insurance are really very different. And in fact, each individual European market is very different again. So I mean, have have, have you seen much of have you seen much of that or, or any more ambitious people to, to go cross you know, any of your maybe even your portfolio to go across across the, the, the Atlantic? And um, is lemonade kind of a poster child for for the fact that you can have success on both sides? Yeah, I mean, I think 
Lemonade's doing a great job of it, and especially in terms of how they're picking which countries to go into. I, I think, first of all, Lemonade, and sort of Dan, this a little bit to your point, like what they're doing is not necessarily revolutionary. They're just very, very much focusing on the consumer experience. Like a lot of homeowners insurance in the US, you can still not do com- complete policy online. You can get the quote online, but then you still have to hop on the phone. And what they're doing is serving that customer that just wants to get things done very quickly and do it all, do it all on their mobile phone. And so by focusing on that customer experience, like that's really what's been, what's been allowing them to grow. And I think that's something that resonates across countries across continents as well is that sort of the younger generations are used to doing everything online and want that experience and i think what is interesting is that they keep and what makes sense is that they keep focusing on countries where uh it's compulsory like keep going up to compulsory markets where either the renter's insurance or the homeowner's insurance is required um which makes a lot of sense because especially in in the u.s people don't necessarily love insurance that much and unless you're required to get it you probably will not think about it uh, and so i think the rollout that they've been doing has been a- extremely thoughtful in terms of what markets to go into because i think most people probably would have assumed that like the uk would have been their first country to to enter into um, but i think they're doing it with a lot more a lot more thought and i mean to your point I think a lot of companies that we invest into and that we speak to often talk about whether they're starting in Europe, then expanding throughout Europe or coming to the US and vice versa. Uh, it's not that simple at all. I and mean, especially within uh, any sort of regulated industry, you have, first of all, you have just different consumer norms, which again, I think that's where Lemonade is benefiting from, from some of those similarities. But then you have extremely different licenses that you need to get regulations etc and so you really need to have really deep knowledge of it and make sure that it actually makes sense for for where you're entering and so it's definitely not an easy thing to do i think we've seen the last year or two a few of the challenger banks trying to come over to the u.s and they haven't necessarily taken off in the way that they have over in europe um so there aren't many examples of it and so i think lemonade again is proving to show that it's possible obviously they still have a lot of growth to do within those markets um but they're showing that it is possible from at least a regulatory standpoint um and now just needing to kind of build that brand over in those countries as well yeah so it's a poster child for well thought out plan not just going for it (laughs) all right we're going to take a quick break there but we'll be back very soon MLB isn't just another hard-to-remember acronym. It stands for Minimum Lovable Brand, the 11FS approach to creating modern, iterative brands to help cut through the noise and create a genuine connection with customers and their culture. Brand is everything in this digital-first world, and we want to help you get it right. To learn more about Minimum Lovable Brand and to download our free handbook, head to bit.ly forward slash 11FSMLB. Welcome back. And now over to Nigel. Thanks, Sarah. So next up, we have a, uh, a good news story, actually, from Zurich in the UK. And Zurich have announced, Zurich Insurance have announced fully paid lockdown leave in the UK for all employees, uh, parents and other carers in its UK offices. Uh, this comes after the announcement of the closure of primary and secondary schools across the UK. And Zurich estimate that this will benefit from more than one in five of its four and a half thousand UK employees who have children and the leave that can be taken individually or consecutively. As a parent myself, 
uh, juggling between printers behind me and, and what's not, and kids running in and out of the room on a regular basis. Uh, I can see exactly how this uh, will benefit people. I'm also uh, delighted to be connected to a whole number of people on LinkedIn and elsewhere who work at Zurich. And the, and the positive press that I've had from individuals um, talking about how good this makes them feel as an organization is just outstanding. I think, you know, we're fortunate that we're mostly in this industry able to do our jobs remotely. But of course, when you get uh, additional burdens like childcare and stuff like that, that you wouldn't normally have to do in a, in a day job, uh, ha having this sort of flexibility is just outstanding. So uh, I guess uh, open to discussion and, and, to, and to the floor, Gillian, uh, Dan, your, your perspective, are you seeing the same sort of things in, in the US as well for, for extra flexibility during this sort of time? Sure, I, I have not seen anything like this in the US. I mean, it, it's, it makes a lot of sense and I think just shows how much you value your employees um, from Zurich side. But I think this is going to be a grand generalization, but I think in the US versus Europe, uh, time off and holidays, etc., are treated very differently. Um, so it doesn't surprise me to not see this in the US. Um, but I think, but I think it's a tremendous thing uh, for people in Zurich. Because I mean, I, I personally do not have kids, but even my colleagues and just seeing them how they're handling sort of having their kids running around and especially at different ages and trying to help them with Zoom school, etc. Um, it, it doesn't allow you to be efficient at work. And it, it's another job. And so I think having that time to kind of actually be able to take care of your children is necessary. You know, I, I, I agree. It's not uh, culturally in the United States, but what I love about the opportunity is just humanizing the workforce and humanizing business. I mean, that's a huge opportunity for the world. You know, it, when companies turn into social, socially responsible and human uh, centered, you know, I think that brings out the best of every company. You know, we started a company last year called Ethos, which really is around rehumanizing the workforce. And we, we, we put a lot of work into a kind of as a smaller private employer, you know, larger companies has probably gone through this purpose journey. But, you know, we've let out our own purpose journey as a company. And, you know, at the end of the day, our responsibility as a company is to really allow all, each of our employees reach their full potential. You know, and, you know, that's really how we're wired as a company. And so, you know, kind of our purpose, it might be cheesy, but your unique potential is our sole, S-O-U-L, purpose. You know, the idea is that companies should not lack heart and soul. And, you know, I think what Zurich's doing is, is exhibiting that as a, as a real uh, testament to their, their culture. Can I just ask a question? I mean, I just want to just make a point that actually it's only 10 days extra leave. So it's not unlimited leave. It's only 10 days um, which is, is is better than absolutely better than nothing. <laughs> it's absolutely better than nothing. It. I don't. This. I have two two points to make. I suppose one. Um, I don't know how much that helps you if you're trying to homeschool children. I don't. You know, they're going to need to be homeschooled for six, eight poss weeks, possibly longer. The other thing is, I'd like to see this expanded beyond. Um, you know, carers. And to extend it to all employees, actually, because even if you don't have children, you probably are struggling in your own way. You know, we have, we're very lucky, we have, we have no internet, uh, but we do have the space for two people to work in this house. But we are working on top of each other all the time for, since, for a year. 
Um, and I'm amazed nobody's dead yet, to be honest with you. But, you know, the idea of 10 extra paid days in your year where you can just say, you know what, I've got 10 days and I can take that day and I can just do what I need to do for me to help with this situation, whether that's a day of yoga, whether you want to like go for a really long run, whether you want to just watch the entire series of Bridgerton in one go. Um, so I, 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 I like the idea. I think it's brilliant. I think it's brilliant publicity for Zurich. I think it's a brilliant, as you say, caring attitude to accept that people are really struggling right now. But I, I wonder, A, if it's enough, both for parents and to just have it for parents, um, and B, whether this is a, a step one to a more flexible and open attitude like if yeah if you're a carer then we'll do something to adjust your hours long term to help you with this or we'll give you more time off during the day to be honest with you I don't know how that would help if I was trying to homeschool two kids and do eight hours worth of work in a day I'd need more than 24 hours in a day um but it's my hard. point is it, yeah, yeah and you and you and you've got two of you and one of you isn't working for, your, your your wife doesn't work full-time right so correct correct um, uh, but but equally I, I i will send you privately a picture later sarah that will make you laugh about emma homeschooling my young daughter and it's just almost aware how, how it started and how it's going and i'll send it to the, the folks on the call and you'll you will laugh at it uh, but it is you know as she said she's she didn't get up to become a, a teacher and now she our, our respect as a, as a global nation for teachers and the patience that they have when they get questions from 36 year olds or eight year olds at once the questions you don't really want uh, is unbelievable y your point about time is interesting i always remember when i met my wife she used to smoke 20 odd years ago i always used to go the smokers outside on the corner of the building would always get like half an hour extra break or an hour extra break a day because they go out for the cigarettes and the non-smokers wouldn't and there was actually a thing in japan a while back sarah you and i talked to this about the show about how you leveled out that time um I think actually to, to Dan's point though about culture, uh, you know, I, I actually like this because it treats, it, it talks about humanizing the workforce, as you mentioned. It goes back to the purpose of insurance and being there for people no matter what. I, I even saw something from Aviva the other day talking about we've got 15,000 staff in the UK, of which you can have up to three days uh, leave to do whatever you want. And we're here to help the vaccination effort. So you can really see insurance companies that have always been there for the people and supported by the people getting up and supporting the purpose of, of society, which I really love. Um, I, I just think we're going to see more and more doing it. I, I, you know, a, a good example is I, had, I interviewed an industrial placement student just before Christmas. She knew all about our values, our purpose, didn't really have a clue about what we were doing as an organization or where we were going, but was really clued up onto what we stood for as an organization, what we tried to stand for and what we put our energy and effort around. And I guess if I go back up to the startup community, Gillian, you would have seen this, Dan, you would have seen this, as you mentioned, in the culture piece. Startups get together very early on and focus on culture first and foremost, addressing the things that often big corporates don't get right or over time have let slip. And I think we see that being addressed in almost every organization I've, I've interacted with, whether it's a, an investment house, a brokerage or a big carrier. I guess, is this now the status quo? Will this be the thing that we do forever and we can never go back? Because this, this is just the right thing to do? I think, I think yes, in some ways, because what employee benefits has looked like is changing drastically. And especially if we're talking about tech and that ecosystem where you had the fun games in the office and beer, et cetera, like that's not really what people are valuing now, especially as remote. And I think as 
we continue and move back towards sort of uh, people going into office. I don't think it's going to be the same as nine, more than nine to five, but five days a week. And so I think companies have to rethink what their employee benefits look like. And I think a lot of that will have to do with sort of that compassion side. And during the heart of COVID, especially sort of although it's getting worse now, um, but especially during the fall and summer, a lot of our portfolio companies started giving mental health days to Sarah's point. Um, and Anthemist started doing this as well, where once a month an employee was able to take a day off just to kind of take care of themselves, take care of any of the things that they need to get done. Also just kind of take a step back from the fact that all of us are probably working a whole lot more given there's less boundaries between home time and work time, et cetera. And so I think that more and more companies are starting to think about what else their what else their employees need. The amount of and what matters. Yeah, exactly. And the amount of companies I've seen that have popped up in the last six plus months focus specifically on okay, what about affordability of healthcare and what types of and how do we go through employers to offer that? What about financial benefits? Maybe because of this even though employers might be struggling to pay for a lot of things, we also want to make sure that our employees aren't struggling. And so helping them manage their cash flow, helping them get additional access to capital has become even more important. Jill, I think you're right on. And I think just to build on that, I think, you know, the whole person does come to work, you know, and so the companies have now have to realize that and they have to make sure that they're there supporting the whole person. And I do think, Nigel, you touched on something. I, I think, culture of the industry, you know, we're a promise to pay industry. And if you think about how tech first came at the industry, it was more of a disruptor and they knew more than people from within. And if you think about Zenefits in the United States as an example of culturally, they did not, it didn't work because of their brash nature and their culture. Back to Jill's point around, they were very bold around a very counterculture what insurance is. Um, and I think that, you know, I think if you look at the opportunity really is around the tech companies coming in and understanding the culture that we have and embracing that and propelling that forward, I think there's huge opportunities uh, that are that exist there. No, couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. And, and long may I continue, I think, as, as we've all said. So well, look, let, with that, let me move on to our, our next story. Um, and that is that Aon have launched fuel insurance product for the shipping and aviation sectors. Now, God, I mean, if there's if there's a a couple of sectors that have been hit quite badly over the last uh, year now, God, there's like ages as well. The last year or so, um, it's definitely uh, aviation and, and, and shipping. They've certainly changed shape. Um, they've announced the launch of a new fuel insurance product designed to help shipping and aviation companies protect against rising fuel costs. The coverage is backed by AAA rated credit insurance and will be activated if the cost of fuel rises to exceed an agreed-upon limit. It will cover the difference between the agreed-upon price and the higher price will be paid out on a monthly basis. The product can provide a valuable solution to companies that consume large amounts of fuel, including marine, aviation, construction, mining, and energy, and is one of the first of its kind commercially available in the sector. So when I first saw this, I was like, oh, that's pretty interesting. But I I mean, I... I'm not a, a, an expert in the sector at all, but I always thought that uh, aviation always bulk bought things like fuel in advance to try and protect against pricing. And part of me was sitting here thinking, is some of this um, spread betting almost at its, at, its, at its best? I don't know, Dan, if we go to you first and you've got a, you've got a view from a, a broker's perspective, is this the sort of thing you've been asked on a regular basis or? 
No, I haven't. I think, you know, it's, I don't have a strong opinion on, you know, whether it's hedging or, you know, derivative based pricing. Um, I, I, I think it's interesting. I find it as another kind of an interesting way to create a product in a market. There obviously has been customer research or something that's been done that obviously that they're trying to fit a niche. I'm just not as familiar with what that might be. Yeah, fair. Gillian, have you seen this in the portfolio? Um, I mean, I'm not deeply familiar with it specifically for fuel insurance, but I, I think to Tan's point, it very much just seems sort of like derivatives buying an option in terms of commodity trading and just hedging. Uh, I mean, we have a company in our portfolio called Stable Insurance that does something similar for crop prices. So you can kind of lock in a specific price um, so that depending on fluctuations of seasons, uh, you have some comfort in sort of knowing the sale price. And so, I mean, I think this is interesting because I hadn't necessarily seen this before, but like this specifically and how it's done. However, it seems it kind of fits into a lot of those sort of derivative trading and for commodities that, that has existed. Now, of course, uh, Mr. Fintech Farmer himself, Richard, has been on the show before and we love what he does. Is there any reason we couldn't take what Stable do um, with the supercomputer powers that they've got and, and everything else and apply it to this segment, this line? I don't think so. I mean, obviously, you have to kind of, there's some different data around crops versus fuel and whatnot. But um, but I think it, it definitely falls under the same umbrella in terms of how you're thinking about future pricing. Yeah, I, I, I agree. Sarah, have you got anything to uh, to jump in on this one? Not really. It's um, it's it's a new one to me. But I, I you know, I, I don't know much about this. Um, I don't. I know nothing about shipping or aviation. I can tell you that much, and uh, probably uh, only marginally more about you know the, watching fuel prices, and and that's only because you know I happen to drive a vehicle. Um, so I I think it's interesting one to watch. I'm just interested to see. I'm, I'm I'm always fascinated when we get presented with a story, and I'm like I have no idea what that is. Let me try and work that out. Um, and sometimes it's really disappointing, and it's just a really badly written press release. Um, but on this occasion, I was like, no, I really have never seen that before, and 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 it may you know I, I'm. I by all means don't see everything, but um, I find it fascinating that we can still get new and interesting things cropping up. Yeah, you know, I think I think the the point about innovation in the industry is super interesting because I, I think our industry has never failed to find solutions where we have problems identify themselves like this. Aviation and marine typically are focused. If you if you look at the last couple of years of doing this together, Sarah, we've always looked at you know flight delay insurance, for example, always came up, but that's when things were flying. Marine issues with the likes of consumers have problems finding out what was on the ship and where they were. Um, and once we've got past this, this is almost like the next wave of innovation. How can we solve some of the cost pressures further down the chain as you, as you, as you go forward? So, um, you know, if, if Stable are doing it in crop and AL are now doing it in, in marine and aviation, I wonder what's next. So interesting. One, one, to, one to watch going forward, especially how, uh, as they use tech to try and, uh, try, try and manage this. Who's, who said our industry is boring, Nigel? Uh, not me. I, yeah, I you will right. never find me say that. So uh, I, I love this space, as you know. So uh, yeah, that's um, right. Uh, with that, let's head back to Sarah. Thank you. Okay, so um, our final story today is one that we always do uh, in the new year, um, and it's a story about 
weird and wonderful claims. Uh, this year's entry comes from Aviva. Um, so it's uh, revealed some of its most unusual claims um, that it has settled for UK general insurance customers to coincide with a new TV ad that launched on Boxing Day. Um, so uh, let's have a look at some of them. Um, there was a home insurance customer who was about to eat his lunch while resting on the sofa, but he sneezed just at the point of sitting and catapulted soup all over the carpet and couch. I have to say, I haven't sneezed, but I have tripped over a rug, stepped on a plug. I I can see that happening. That seems totally reasonable. As can the idea of an excitable dog wagging its tail into a can of beer, which ended up on a laptop. Also seems, you know, entirely reasonable. Um, a home insurance customer claiming for a replacement phone when it suddenly stopped working after she dropped it into a bowl of custard. I don't think that's sudden, but you know, I can I can see how it might happen and and why one might want to claim. Um, and then uh, last one, uh, one customer spilt a can of uh, Coke in her car boot. Oh, no, sorry, cola, it's not necessarily Coke uh, in her car boot after being startled by a wasp. The sticky liquid unfortunately seeped into the vehicle's electrics, causing damage to the audio and sat nav systems. Um, that's really unlucky, actually. <laughs> and now worrying about what I have spilled in the boot of my car over time. Um, there are there are also uh, quite a few more if you want to uh, to, to go and uh, have a look online. There's there's one uh, involving a deer, which um, seems particularly unfortunate, both for the deer and the person who had to had to claim. Um, so uh, I think one of the points that uh, Nigel you made earlier was that it was interesting to see that of these um, interesting claims, uh, over half of them were submitted digitally. Which um, my response to that actually was, I'm not that surprised, but with the caveat that it is. Aviva and it is the UK. Um, I don't know if anybody has any thoughts. I, I, you, we can go either way on this, on on, on sort of the the high uh, number or volume, if you like, of digital claims, or if or if you if you think any of these are are unrealistic claims, because I, I can honestly see all four of those things happening to me. But maybe I'm just really clumsy. I'd say I'm not surprised by the percentage being submitted digitally because I think that a lot of these, especially maybe like the phone one or, or ones that are maybe a little bit smaller, you probably wouldn't have gone through the process of submitting a claim if it wasn't easy to do. Um, and so I do think that that probably accounts for why maybe you might be seeing some of these more bizarre um, types of claims because because it's so easy easy to submit them. Um, but I, I like the one about the excitable dog just because it kind of sounds like the dog ate my homework type excuse. <laughs> I actually actually had a friend who had a dog who had to have its tail amputated because it wagged its tail too much. Um, so the dog was fine and, and, and there was a much happier dog after it had its tail amputated because it didn't keep knocking things over. But um, it is it is a genuine peril of owning a happy pooch. What, what have you got for us, Dan? Have you got some some strange, wonderful claims out there? You know, like I said, it's an interesting it's an interesting industry and interesting business that you get it from all sides. You know, we you know our interesting claims come from we have a practice that uh, is the largest uh, in the fraternal and sorority business. So you see a lot of very interesting claims from from that uh, segment of the of the market. They've got a uh, highly charged age group. Uh, that have creative minds and energy. And, you know, we find our way to examining a lot of interesting things. So, you know, risk management is always on this. I've got four boys, three of them in that category. So I, 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 I go to bed every night praying that, you know, they, they stay out of a claim file for, for sure. <laughs> 
That sounds like a Netflix series waiting to happen. Yeah, I hope not, you know. So. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I like these. I, I think these are good ways to remind people positively of the things insurance is there for. And I've got a friend that will claim for the smallest of things. I'm still of the, I don't want to say age group because I'm getting old, but I'm of the age group that says, unless I can't afford to replace it myself, I fear for my premium going up, therefore I won't claim. Um, and I'm, you know, I've, I've had a few claims in, in my time, but uh, yeah, some of these things are just, you, as you say, so you can see them happening. You can see the, the cat knocking something over, the dog knocking something over and the claim going in. I'm genuinely delighted with the, with the volume of claims that are now digital as well, because rate quote buying for me is where people have focused the last couple of years. I'd say at least in the UK, that's probably 95% digital now. Claims have always lagged that on a digital perspective, and I would say on much less. Um, they're, they're definitely there on, on the personal lines, but they're, they're much less on, on SME and commercial. But, but I now sit here going, how do you even start to investigate these things as fraud when they come in? I mean, they're obviously, they're going to break all the, the, all the text uh, analysis straight away when you start writing these stories out and go, it can't be true. I've just got to speak to someone because this is never going to happen. No one's going to ever believe me. Unless, unless they're so bizarre, they have to be true. The one that I'm trying to work out is how a lady submitted her claim. I don't know if she did do it digitally, actually. Um, but I was just thinking, how do you submit your claim digitally if you've dropped your phone in a bowl of custard? Like, how do you take a picture of that? What's the what's the process? Yeah, you know, I think it's interesting if you think about it as it relates to who's putting in the claim, right? How easy is it, to Jill's point? But more importantly, I think there's a mindset of a premium payer that says, hey, I want to get utility out of my payment. So people that write a check expect to get utility, and the only way they get utility is to put in a claim in. So that's one. So that's the mindset of there's a percentage of, premium payers out there, whether they're individually or companies that want to get utility or don't want to get it. So that's on one side. And then on the other side, you've got insurance companies that either want to pay or don't want to pay, and they make it easy or hard to do that. And I think that's an interesting dynamic with the industry. And I think that, you know, I think it, you know, it, it just presents an interesting dimension to think about, you know, whether you want to be known as the payer uh, or you don't, right? You know, you, there's U.S. insurance companies that make it hard to get payments, and they have a reputation. And in you know, and on the other end of it, you've got high quality companies that are known to, to go above and beyond to satisfy the policyholder. I, I, I it's, it's a tricky balance. I mean, if you look at the lemonade story around paying claims in seconds or, or whatever else, it's it's really important to go, how do we establish trust with the end customer, but not encourage everyone to make claims for everything because we've got to get our, our numbers right. So, so I think it's actually a really brave thing to go do. And it's a really good way of building that trust to go, we will pay claims out. And the companies we've mentioned today pay between 95 and 99% of, of valid claims. Yeah, of course, Aviva makes a big thing of it. And this is the point of their marketing campaign. You know, we will pay that many and, and you know, everybody will, believe me, there are enough armchair journalists out there to go and prove you wrong if you claim a stat and it turns out to be inaccurate. So um, good on Aviva. And um, we will leave it on that lighthearted note for today. Um, where can our listeners find out more about you? Do you have a website, a Twitter, a LinkedIn uh, that you'd like to share with our listeners, Jill? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter. It's Jill Will NYC. Perfect. Dan, how about you? Uh, you can find me at homesmurphy.com. You know, it's uh, our corporate website and I'm on Instagram and Twitter and all the others, but that'd be a great starting point. And Nigel, other than homeschooling, where can you be found? 
Oh, I'm getting the PE classes, so I'm lucky. I, uh, I'm on Twitter at Nigel Walsh. Perfect. And you can find me on Twitter at Sarah Kachansky. Thank you so much to all of my guests. As always, you can find the show on Twitter at Instech Insiders. And if you like what you've heard this week, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. And please, please leave us a review on iTunes. If you have any suggestions or feedback, please reach out on Twitter or email podcast at 11fs.com. Thank you so much for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.